Paracast, with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. So this week we're back to a, 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 something more reminiscent of earlier Paracast episodes where we're mixing it a little uh, up a little bit in the two hours. On our first hour, we have Leslie Kane, a friend of the show and one of the most reputable people doing real research work around the UFO topic related to the mainstream media. And then also we're, we're thrilled to have on for the first time the guy who writes, and I quote, the mainstream media's lonely UFO weblog, Devoid. We have Billy Cox on the show today, and I'm, I'm thrilled that we were able to get Billy on after quite a while of trying to, because we think it's really important at this point in time, at all points in time really, to talk about how the mainstream media deals with the topic of UFOs. Now, Billy, you've been writing about this topic for a while for the uh, Sarasota Herald Tribune. I'm wondering, we'd like to know, uh, how is it that you convinced a mainstream newspaper to let you write about UFOs? Well, only on the blog, not really for the print (laughs) platform. Mm, Okay. When I came over here, I had been working for a number of years at the Gannett newspaper over in uh, Brevard County, which is the backyard of Kennedy Space Center. And I'd been writing about UFOs off and on uh, in sort of feature context for a number of years over there. And so I have a quite a bit of interest in it. So when I was recruited to come over here, one of the first things that I asked them, you know, was would they have a problem with me writing about UFO stories? And they hadn't counted on that kind of a question, I'm sure, for any of their employees. So they kind of smiled and said, well, uh, no, if you want, um, you know, as long as you can find a local angle, which was always the case over at Florida Today, my previous employer. And a local angle for a UFO story in the backyard of Kennedy Space Center was a lot easier mm-hmm. than finding a local angle over here. So um, I have not really had what I would consider a strong enough local angle for the print platform. However, they have indulged me. They've been very nice about allowing me to do a blog and essentially my spare time. I mean, because this isn't the devoid blog that I do isn't a primary function of what I do. I mainly write feature stories over here at the Herald Tribune. So it was kind of a, gee, do they really want me that bad <laughs> or, or or what? So I just threw it out there, and fortunately, they were very good-natured about it and said, okay, fine, see what you can do. And that's how it worked out. Let me ask you a question, Billy, here, with regard to something like the space probe to the moon to crash a couple of probes. Now, we understand there was a lot of activity (laughs) in some UFO circles about that. Is this something that you get involved in? Uh, Well, I try to be as, well, what's the right word, circumspect? Um, with my blog as possible, there are so many different fringe, freaky aspects to this phenomenon. You can really just tie a blindfold around your eyes and throw a dart, and you can write about wherever it hits. And you could spend countless hours writing about fringe stuff. Now, this criticisms that I've heard of the water probe uh, onto the southern hemisphere or, or pole of Mars, you know, upsetting the the Lunarians or, or, or whatever, I I could write about that, I suppose, um, and maybe I will. But I try to stay away from it. I mean, I could make an entire living out of writing about the nutty stuff. And, and gee, maybe I should. But no, I haven't gotten there yet, and that, that may happen. I'm always 
looking for for stuff, and who knows? <laughs> I, mean, I just haven't weighed in on that one yet. Not that anybody's really waiting for me to weigh in on anything, but something that 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 seems to be uh, uh, the case with the mainstream media is that it there's that old saying: if it bleeds, it leads. You know, sensationalism is somehow uh, the mechanism by which you can get more readers for your newspaper, for your website. And if we look at any, almost any aspect of the coverage of what's going on in the world today, certainly in the United States, in the mainstream media, there seems to be this polarization that's going on. Now, uh, and this is a question I'd like both you, Billy, and you, Leslie, to address in that order. Do you think that it's like you said, Billy, you could write about the, the extreme nuts, you know, it could be a full-time gig. Do you think, do you really think that's what people want to read? Um, or is it just that that's, for a lot of people, the easier stuff to cover because trying to take a more centrist view is perhaps a little more work-intensive? Well, let me just say that I think it's easier um, for the mainstream media to do those those types of stories. And I'll give an example. Um, I guess it goes back to July of 08. This is when uh, MUFON came out with their 77-page uh, analysis of the Stephenville UFO incident, which I, I thought was pretty much a blockbuster with its radar hits. And mm -hmm. anyway, everything that they looked at with National Weather Service, FAA radar, corroborated what at least eight eyewitnesses on the ground were were talking about in July of that year. That's when when when, when this came out. But it was also when the Stan Romanek and Jeff Peckman uh, news conference was held, where you had you know the alleged photo of the alien with the balloon head looking in the in, window. The yeah. window, right. Right. I talked to Glenn Schultz, one of the co-authors of the MUFON piece, and he said, you know, here we put a lot of scientific analysis into this report, and we can't get any coverage. And I live here. He lives in a suburb of, of Denver. He says, I live right here in the backyard of where the media converged on this, you know, um, little balloon-headed alien, and I, I can't get any to look at this stuff. So I think it's part of living in sort of a visual culture. I think the media responds to something that is quick. It's, it's easy. It strikes some sort of a glandular response, whether there's anything to it or not. It's really tough to analyze and, and make flow charts and radar hits and that kind of stuff into interesting, entertaining Journalism, I think it can be done. You have to work a little bit harder at it, but I think it also takes a lot more context and perspective for the media to get interested in doing some really thoroughly hashed out UFO coverage and something like, um, you know, if you can get a picture of an alien, quote unquote, then that's a lot easier for the media to go after. It's also lazier because the thing I see in journalism not just from the standpoint of UFO coverage or paranormal subjects. A lot of coverage you see these days, and a lot of it may be the responsibility of the 24-hour cable networks where they've got to fill 24 hours of airtime. They don't even look at the morgue, so to speak, to get a perspective on a story. They just run the latest and greatest, and they forget about the next day because there's a new latest and greatest, and they don't stop. And when they do have analysis or perspective, they're just yelling at each other. 
I mean, that's another point that you're making, Gina. What I was thinking about adding to um, Billy's list of the way they operate, another point is the fact that they like something when it's hot and when it's, you know, something gets old really fast in the eyes of the media. So the same thing happened with the O'Hare Airport case in 2006, Mm. a comparable situation where NARCAP did this extensive study on it. And just like the MUFON study, it takes a long time to do the study. So it might come out, you know, six months later, however long it takes. And then you've got everything you would want to report on the story. But by that time, if it's six months old, the media isn't interested anymore. I mean, they want like an instant, they want the story when the object, when the sighting happens, and then they're on to something else, like like Jean just said. And they're not going to revisit something even though the really important story can't really be told until the data is in. But still, they don't like to revisit it, something after the fact, which is really a problem because nobody can do any research that gets reported on. But is that true for, for pretty much everything in the media at this point, Leslie? Is that is that it, the byproduct of people's short attention spans, not just from the production side, but also from the consumption side? I mean, I don't know, David. I mean, things do get old, but let's say you have a plane crash, you know, that's a really big mm-hmm. story, and then it takes three months, and then there'll be a story about it three months later about they found the, the black box. And right. I mean, you know, I think that any journalist could frame the story in a way six months later that would be really interesting to people if they just were willing to read the report. I mean, there's also the point that they're not going to sit down and study a 75-page report you know, when they're rushing around being told what to do by their editors to cover this or cover that. And, um, you know, so, I mean, I don't know about the general attitude. I think it depends on what the story is and how big a deal it is and how sensational it is. And, and you know, this story about radar data, it would have to be explained to people. Somebody would really have to put some time into it. That's the point. Mm. And explain to people what it means and what the significance is. And you'd have to put it in the context of really of the whole UFO issue. It's such a huge issue that isn't covered properly. So I think people in the journalism world, they just don't know what to do with it. Is it also true that the problem, Leslie and Billy, is the fact that to a lot of so-called journalism outlets, it's basically a source of profit, a source of entertainment, You know, back in the old days, of course, we would always separate, especially in broadcast journalism, we'd separate the news department from entertainment. But, you know, with 24-hour cable networks, the distinction is blurred. Now it's just a source of revenue, so you put people on who get ratings. It doesn't matter if they're telling the truth. It doesn't matter if it's the white-haired guy who weeps on the air and screams and yells and carries on. As long as he gets ratings, that's good. Hi, this is Michelle from Namecheap. We don't have millions of dollars to get race car drivers or models to endorse us, but we will do everything we can to make those who buy domains or web hosting from us as happy as possible. We offer a free SSL as well as free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers or troublemakers. We won't bug you with obnoxious upsells when you check out or in your inbox. But most importantly, our customer service team really cares about you. It's what we pride ourselves in the most because it's your endorsement that means the most to us. If you like what you hear, get deals on both our domains and our web hosting at radio.namecheap.com, radio.namecheap.com, and be sure to play our contest by following us on Twitter. Thanks, Michelle. And by the way, listeners, please use the coupon code RADIODAY, that's RADIODAY, one word, for special discounts at Namecheap. 
We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and David. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. You hear it on TV. You hear it on radio. Cash for gold. Yes, it's an enticing phrase during these challenging days. But the real question is, how much cash are you going to get for your gold and silver? Are you going to get the best value? Well, you can get the best price from a company whose owners have decades of experience in the business. Welcome to Goldbug. The folks at Goldbug warn you that many of those high-budget gold buyers are paying far less than you deserve for your gold and silver. Goldbug will give you top dollar each and every time. To learn more, call 1-866-596-6134. That number again, 1-866-596-6134 for Goldbug. Or visit us online at goldbug.com. That's Goldbug with two Gs. Goldbug.com. Hi, this is Bud Hopkins, and you're listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg, David Jedney, and I completely enthusiastically endorse this program. It's an absolutely great program with opportunities to stretch out and talk. I don't know about our ratings, but we have Leslie Kane and Billy Cox. We're talking about the treatment of the press when it comes to getting solid UFO information before the public, information that may not always be entertaining. David? Well, it, it totally, uh, it, it sounds, Gene, like what happened was that the 1976 film Network about what potentially could happen to the news media essentially came true. I mean, all of it came true, where basically uh, the news department, which never had to generate uh, uh, profits per se, all of a sudden became a primary profit people, especially after CNN uh, appeared on the scene. And, and that's kind of interesting. Now, in, in, in fact, Billy, it makes me wonder, at the newspaper, um, you're working on feature stories, but yet you're also writing this blog for the paper. Does the paper take notice of the kind of traffic you get for the Devoid blog? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we, we monitor everything, and um, I was getting some pretty good hits until July, and we underwent a format change, and as a result, all my links out there were, were severed. Um, and so I'm starting from scratch trying to build those numbers back again. Um, but it was fairly reliable. Whenever I would post a blog, um, it would be in the top five of our story traffic, regardless of what the issue or the subject of any given story was. The uh, Devoid blog, people seemed to respond to it, perhaps because it was linked up to so many different places. So, I'm, you know, I think that's one of the reasons I've not really been terribly discouraged from, or not discouraged at all from doing any of this stuff, because it does create some traffic. Now, you know, with that in mind, though, given the kinds of pressures that newspapers are are feeling economically in terms of declining ad revenues and declining readership, um, when they see something like that, does anybody there get the idea? Do you think that they start to think, hey, maybe we should try putting some of this coverage in our print edition? Maybe it'll attract some readers that might we m otherwise might not have had. Do they do they think about that at all? I mean, what's their attitude about 
how the dynamics of online versus print publishing are changing. And if you've got traffic, if you're generating a significant amount of traffic uh, to your blog, which is an electronic entity, do they not see crossover opportunities for the print side of the equation? We're constantly looking for crossover opportunities with more conventional subject. This here, again, going back to what they were telling me uh, from the very beginning, they like to have a local angle. And there are local angles here to be had. Um, they require a little bit more work than I've really been able to put into it. And I'm, I'm waiting for that chance. I'm not quite there yet, but mm. I've got some ideas. But there, yeah, we're always looking for opportunities. So, Leslie, you know, you your background, you, you come from the world of, I don't want to say uh, you know, corporate media, but certainly more mainstream media, and you've become involved in this topic in a, in a pretty significant way. Do you have any thoughts about how we can try to increase the visibility of this topic in the mainstream media in a way that's not going to involve sensationalism? Do you think that's possible? Um, I, yeah, I think if, you know, there's a, something that happens, I mean, the, it's hard to do it if it's not an event that's happening in the moment, because even though something might be really newsworthy, if it happened in the past, they tend to not be interested in it. But, for instance, the O'Hare event, mm-hmm. um, you know, I mean, I think the key thing, you know, it did get some good coverage, and the Chicago Tribune did a good job on that story, but the problem is it's over in a couple of days. But, you know, in terms of just in general, I mean, I'm hoping, you know, I'm working on this book, and I'm hoping that this book is going to present such an extraordinarily unarguable case for the reality of there being unidentified objects in the sky that I'm hoping that, if, I mean, and I know I'm going to have a lot of opportunities when the book comes out to be be on the media and be in the media with it. And I don't know what else to do except trying to bring forward, continuing to try to bring forward the very most credible information from the most credible authorities. You know, to me, the very existence of unidentified flying objects, regardless of what they turn out to be when we actually figure it out, that is a, is a huge news story. And so, yeah, we have to keep going after the individual events that happen because that's when the media is willing to jump in, such as, you know, the Stevensville, Texas thing or the O'Hare case or whatever. But, you know, I'm still kind of trying to beat, beat down the wall of resistance to the very fact that these objects exist and that there is absolutely no question that there are physical objects in the sky that we can't identify and that have incredible capabilities. And that is so well documented. So I'm still going after that. And, you know, maybe I'm crazy to do it, but I'm giving it my best shot in this book, which is going to include all these first-person pieces by the very best authorities in the world about that very fact. Well, now and tell I'm us about the I'll, book. The media will respond. You know, what, can, what else can I say? Right. Well, now you've brought up this book, but we don't know anything about it. So tell us a little bit about the book you're working on. Um, it's um, 50% of my own writing and 50% of other people's writing. And the other people's writing is about 19 contributors from a lot of different countries. I've got five generals. You know, high-level people who have actually written their own first-person accounts. So people get to read in their own words what they have to say about the phenomenon. And a lot of them are actual witnesses and others are investigators. They're all officials. They're all either pilots or government investigators or military people. So you have a range of, of, of accounts. So you have, a, for instance, General Jafari from Iran. He was the main pilot during the 1976 case, which I think people are familiar with. He also was at mm-hmm. the press conference that Jane, James Fox and I gave. And, you know, he's for the first time written in a very, very detailed account 
of what it was like for him to be involved in that. What actually happened from moment to moment? What was, what was he feeling when this certain thing happened? What did he do right after he landed? You know, these kinds of very detailed, and it becomes like you're reading science fiction, but it's not science fiction. Right. And so it's so captivating. You have such a range of different types of pieces because some of them are generals that have headed up investigations, say. They haven't actually seen one themselves, but the strength of the statements that these people make is so so incredible that there's absolutely no way you can argue with the reality of something. And nobody is claiming that we know what they are. But, you know, the French have, for instance, said that they believe the extraterrestrial hypothesis is the most valid one, and certainly a lot of these people feel that way. But they're calling in unison through this book, they're all calling for the U.S. government to uh, set up a new investigation to join the rest of the world and find out, solve this problem, find out what they are. And so part of the purpose of the book is to provide a platform for that message to be given. And I know it sounds like a long shot, but it's a, the way it's being presented is, I think, you know, we have a shot at something changing. That's all I can say. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and it is very and, amazing to read these people's pieces. Well, that case you bring up, the 1976 uh, case in Iran, that's one of the uh, that's considered one of the most credible cases because of the specifics of how it played out, that there was uh, radar information, that you had uh, physical effects, that you had, you know, this was all being reported by uh, uh, a top-flight military pilot. And, you know, it, it's, it's, it's frustrating when we sometimes hear these skeptibunkers talking about this idea, and I've heard certainly Michael Shermer uh, try to present this concept of a, an airplane pilot, a military pilot not being any better of a visual witness to aerial uh, events than your average Joe on the street. I know. I've heard that argument presented, too. It's just so ludicrous. I mean, you discussed that with Richard Haynes when you had him on, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, they'll say anything. And the Iranian case, there were actually four pilots that were up and involved. I mean, General Jafari was not by himself. He had someone else with him. And then there was another plane that was up with two other people in it. It was seen by people on the ground. You know, it wasn't like everybody, there was only one person that saw the thing. And the other thing about it was it was documented by the U.S. government in a three-page memo that was, you know, written up by the Department of uh, the DIA, Defense Mm -hmm. Intelligence Agency, making very strong statements about the validity of the case. It was one of the strongest UFO documents I've seen. And so when you put it all together, you you don't have, you have a very, it is a really strong case. You know, but that's not the kind of thing that you can, like, walk out to the mainstream media with and say, hey, here's a story for you. They're not going to cover it because it happened in 1976. So I'm hoping that by putting all these different people together in one place and then releasing a book, which is going to get publicity because the publisher wants to publicize it, um, you know, I'm hoping that that's going to – then they might take note. You have a little window of time where they'll take note. Do you feel that the publisher will put the kind of support behind it that it needs? I mean, here's a question. Did the publisher come to you, or did you have to seek out the publisher for this? I went through an agent, and the agent got the publisher, which is the way Mm -hmm. you have to do it in New York. And, I mean, they say that it's Random House. They're a big publisher. They say they're going to put a lot into it, and they're very excited about it. So time will tell, but that's what that's what they've told me at this point. You know, it's They're very really interesting when you mention that. I don't want to be self-serving to the show, but I think this is true with every one of these publishers. A lot of small publishers are out there that have titles related to some aspect of the paranormal. And we can't get all the people on the show, and not all the people may merit being on the show, but have intriguing books. We like to get to the attention of our listeners. 
And we're not doing just to live on fumes. We have expenses to pay. So I will ask these publishers, well, have you thought about advertising on the site or on the show? And they say, we have no budget to advertise anywhere. And I, I think to myself, wait a minute. It doesn't matter whether it's us or anybody. Of course, we'd like to get the ad revenue, but you don't have any money to advertise someone's book. They've worked hard. They might have worked years on these books, and they're not putting a dime into publishing it. What's going on here? I know. Well, yeah, i got to have a publisher that has money. What can I say? There are so many, and there are more and more smaller publishers now, and you know, people can self-publish very easily now, much more so than they could five or ten years ago. And I, you're right. They don't have big budgets, so they can't afford it. Um, but well, Random House can. They can afford it. And they have a whole publicity department that deals with nothing else. But, you know. Right. right. So, so will, there, will there be an, an electronic version of the book, Leslie? You mean the whole thing? Yeah. God, I, I, not, not right away. I would never be allowed to do that. No, no, no. Really? They're, oh, yeah. no. The, the publisher would never allow that. They want to sell books. Well, what about the Amazon Kindle book readers? They can sell books that way. I guess that's true. I don't know. I know about the Kindle thing, so I don't. I really, it's a question I can't answer. I have no idea. Hmm. I'm you know, just trying to get the thing finished. I don't think about. I can't think about those things. <laughs> Sorry. And guys. Do, we, do we have a title for this book yet? No, that's the big. I'm having a lot of trouble with the title, so I'm going to hold off on that right now. I'm working really? with them on. Yeah, think, it's really been hard. I, I just want to offer you some assistance here. Okay. Maybe what we need to do is have a thread on the Paracast forums where we ask our our our, our listeners, and we have some some really smart forum members. That'd be great. Maybe we need to do a contest to title your okay. book. I'm just I know we didn't talk about this ahead of time. I'm just throwing this out to you, but it can't hurt, right? Absolutely not. I'd be delighted. <laughs> If it ends up, if somebody ends up figuring it out, then it'll they'll certainly be acknowledged in the book. It can't be too wordy, you know, because it's got to be a memorable, really kind of grab thing, something that grabs you, but it has to be serious also, and um, try to capture the essence of the book, which is pretty impossible to do in a few words. So and, and I, I guess I know what I saw is already taken, so you can't use that. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't use that anyway. For people, give them a T-shirt, give them something, the winning entry gets something, you know, a lifetime subscription to who knows what. But, you know, give them, give them that kind of incentive, too. Well, actually, it comes up with the winning title. It's going to have to be fast, though, because we're right on the verge of trying to nail it down. All right. Well, that's the, the wonderful thing about the electronic realm. We can get that started uh, on the forums. Yeah, it just happened, and we'll get it up on the forums even before this episode airs. Fantastic. Thank you. That's the beauty of but if the I, Oh, yeah. If I get it, um, if we get a title nailed down before it airs, I'll let you know. You might want to edit this part out. <laughs> no, we'll leave it in. It'll be fine. It won't be a problem. It'll be fine. So what's so going to happen the, is that people will basically vote anyway, so you maybe they have buyer's remorse, and if the book goes through a second edition and the first edition doesn't work to the extent that you want, the second edition can inherit a new title. I mean, they do that. You know, they change titles. Uh, okay. Books yeah. and movies, it doesn't work the first time they try again. Hey, neighbors. The old way to meet for business is over the phone or in person. The new better way is to meet clients and colleagues online with GoToMeeting. GoToMeeting is like meeting in person, but less time-consuming and less expensive. Start your meeting with just a click. 
Everyone can see your computer desktop on their computer screen so they can follow along as you move from page to page. You can use GoToMeeting to host a sales presentation, a product demo, or a training session. Even collaborate on documents by sharing your screens. Our listeners can try GoToMeeting free for 30 days. That's a month of unlimited online meetings free. For this special offer, you must visit www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts. That's gotomeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. We have Billy Cox... Leslie Kane, we're talking about the media's treatment of the question of UFOs and what, if anything, we can do about it. And of course, we have Leslie Kane's untitled work, which is, by the way, called Untitled. There it goes. I got a title for you. I'm, oh, I won the contest. Okay. It's over. That's it. No, I don't think so. Unidentified so, title book. Yeah, the unidentified. Oh, God. Unidentified in every way. So, so here's the thing, guys, and, and, you know, we look at the, the world of print and we look at the world of on, the online, you know, internet media revolution. And, you know, we, every day we're hearing about print publications that are basically having to really scale back. And this question of how newspapers are going to try to earn a living putting their media on the web. Question for both of you. And it, it, kind of, it, it kind of dovetails into what you were saying before, Leslie, that, you know, this is all a, a very visual world that we live in. And it's almost as if people um, don't want to read as much. They want to have more of a multimedia presentation of any kind of content. It doesn't really matter what, whether it's educational or news or entertainment. It basically everything wants to be visual. Do you think that in, in the future, the more compelling media form for any of this stuff will be in the form of, you know, dynamic media. Like, for example, here you're, you're, you've been working with James Fox on his latest documentary that's, that's aired on the History Channel, and I guess it's going gonna, it's gonna to air again shortly. Do you think that this topic lends itself more readily to that kind of a visual storytelling format versus the printed word? And is that really the future of trying to get mass acceptance or interest in, in, in this topic specifically? Well, I mean, I think that James has done an incredibly important film. I also think that there have been many other UFO films, and I don't think it's going to be enough to actually break through any kind of barrier that we face in our society about the subject of UFOs. I mean... But I, and I agree with you that people don't read the way they used to read. I mean, it's a challenge for a writer to try to portray the subject in a way that's going to grab a reader and not, you know, not, and be serious, but at the same time not make them want to put that book down. But, you know, the problem with the, the I mean, I think the film, James's film is really important and absolutely fantastic movie. And, but, you know, but basically people in that film are getting sound bites, you know, a, con- a collection of short pieces. And what I like about my book is that I'm providing a lot more detail for the serious person who really wants to learn something. And um, But you're right, people don't necessarily want that. So I'm hoping that, you know, with enough uh, publicity that people will choose to really decide they want to 
come to terms with what this issue is about and really understand better about why there's so much resistance to, to accepting it and to facing it, which is a theme that runs throughout the book, is, you know, the whole taboo against the subject. A lot of what this book is doing is confronting that. So I think it, it has a sort of unique role to play if people are willing to read it. And, and I agree with you, people are less and less interested in reading. Well, this leads me into uh, making a plea with you, and, and I've kind of done this with you before on air. I'm going to do this again now, because I count you as, as a friend, and I want to see you succeed. I mean, we both really want to see you guys succeed with what you're doing in, in a very strong way. I'm going to strongly suggest, recommend, and really plead here that you work out a situation with Random House by where when they start the promotional push for this book, that if there's any way possible, you know, the video of that conference that you did with James Fox and, and so many of these players who um, have written down their stories and are, and are featured in your book, to watch that press conference is extremely, extremely compelling. It's a very powerful piece of video footage, and it's my understanding that that has not been available anywhere online yet. You, you, you guys haven't put that up. I think it's critical. I mean, really, truly critical that when your book comes out, um, and even, you know, possibly before, but certainly tied into the book release, that Random House host, and not like a YouTube thing, a high-quality online version of the video that I know you guys made for that mm-hmm. press conference. I mean, there's little snippets of it in the work that James has done, but it doesn't exist yet anywhere online or available to the public in an unedited form where you basically see the entire press conference pretty pleased with sugar on top. Get them to host that thing online in like a, in a nice, high-quality, not heavily compressed version. This way, Billy can write about it at length and, and post links to some of the most compelling clips in there. We can reference it on the Paracast forums, and, and people can get that first-hand, unabridged version of it because that, to, to me, seems like that's the power of the Internet. Yet you're not constrained by the kinds of time and cost issues that you have in the broadcast world, you can put something up online like that. And uh, I think it would be a fantastic thing, not only for promoting your book, but also for getting people to understand that there is a depth of fact here that is lost in the sound bites. Right. Well, I agree with you. And I am planning to have a website with all kinds of visual stuff and interviews with some of the people and so on so that people can sit and watch stuff. And yes, I agree with you. That would be something very worthwhile to put up. It'd be the whole press conference. So I would like to do that. Assuming that it, it, it would I be think so it can much, happen. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's really good because I think it would be so much better than <laughs> seeing another set of people who have similar press conferences who put a lot of their stuff up online, the exopolitical crowd. I mean, they're taking advantage of the medium. They're putting a lot of their stuff online. In fact, like they they love Billy so much, they gave him an award, right, Billy? Uh, yeah. Dubious <laughs> honor, there. though, right? <laughs> so, Billy, are you sending it back? Uh, I can't afford to send anything back. I work in a newspaper. <laughs> Give me some change. <laughs> well, I guess if we got those people to send you a mailing envelope or whatever this award is, would they do it then? That's the question I can't answer. I, You know, can I get back to something um, that you talked about a second ago? Please. Um, this is about entertainment and, and networks, and I think network news trying to understand 
how to be more entertaining. This is something that, that entertainment divisions of the networks already understand. We know this because the, they tend to run their UFO stuff during uh, their sweeps month. And that is people are interested in this stuff. You look, Leslie mentioned the O'Hare thing and how... Yeah, the John Hilkovich thing. Yeah, Yeah, and six months later, thereabouts, NARCAP comes out with this report that, that nobody reads. And they didn't read it because nobody, and no one with the MSM picked up on it. Okay, Hilkovich gets one million hits, right, on what? New Year's Day, 2007. Yeah, exactly right. right. One million. So, yeah, and so why why wouldn't the people, the editorial people at the Chicago Tribune understand exactly what the network entertainment divisions understand? And they would just pick this thing up and go, look, you know, we got a million hits when, when this thing initially broke. Why not look at this? You, you know what? There's smart people in newspapers in the graphics divisions and stuff. You can put together some really snazzy, jazzy graphics to go with the online version of, of your report. And I'm thinking, are they out to lunch or are they not thinking? What's the problem? This is a natural. This is a no-brainer. You get that same crowd back for the analysis, which makes it even more compelling. No longer is it just anecdotal. Now you've got all kinds of you know, algorithms even. It just drives me crazy. Well, why do you think they didn't do that, Billy? I don't know. I, I don't know. I think it's because they it really there's no one at newspapers with any kind of a long view, or, you know, with any sort of depth of field with this. It's, uh, you know, I, I know there are a lot of people out there who think, well, the media is controlled by some sort of secret cabal, that sort of thing. That's not been my experience, and I doubt it. I think the media regulates themselves when it comes to these exotic sorts of issues. It's simply not necessarily because they are afraid of it but because they don't know anything about it. It's a freak show. It's something in a jar from Malahide. It's a three-legged pig. They don't have anybody who's an expert on this. How do you become an expert? Nobody's an expert. I'm not an expert. You know, they don't hand out doctors in this stuff. You know, it drives me nuts. And um, I think there is an intrinsic interest out there among people with this if it's presented properly and it's just not done so. It's always very spotty. And you know, with the limited attention span, the Hilkovich thing, that that could have been they had amazing they had an enormous opportunity to follow that up and, and they didn't and I'm thinking like the Denver Post with the Glenn Schultz's look at the Stevensville thing. In their own backyard, and they 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 go for the picture, the alleged picture of an alien. I just it, the paradox drives me nuts. My head wants to explode. That's true, well, that's, and I think you know you're right about this. The Chicago Tribune had an incredible opportunity. I mean, they could have done like some kind of a followed up with stories about other UFO events and really built on the momentum that they had. I think part of it was that Hilkovich is a transportation writer. He never covered a story like this before, you know. I mean, this was like unheard of for him to have a story that was read like this one was. And and I think that maybe for him to read the NARCAP report might have been sort of outside his his area of what he covers. And they didn't bother to give it to anybody else. Well, that's just it. It may have been outside of his comfort zone, but management needs to get their act together where they can go, look, uh, they need to be more in tune with what's happening on their websites and go, here's what we got. Why can't we uh, duplicate this sort of traffic? Well, you can. You can do it. It's crazy. You have to plan for it. Yeah. 
what what's happening about that, guys, is that we're in a transitional phase. All right, it's really important to realize that at most of these big publishing houses, uh, the digital stuff has always been seen as ancillary, and it, it, it's never been well, not never, but finally now people are starting to understand that. The digital world isn't going away, and there are some useful examples of this that we can study to see how they played out. I mean, music distribution is probably one of the most uh, uh, compelling and telling examples of where an entrenched industry did not see the juggernaut of the Internet coming and basically just figured that they'd sit on their on their hands and wait to see how it all played out without realizing they had to take a proactive role, and, and as, as a result... You had a company like Apple, which basically went from being a non-entity in the music world to being the country's biggest music retailer, online, brick and mortar or otherwise. They've um, the world's biggest music retailer. Well, uh, okay, so now it's the world's biggest music retailer. Well, sure. the, the, the record labels didn't see that coming. And with print publishers... Um, you know, there's this whole world called the Internet, which is really a, about a distribution medium to playback devices, whether they're computer screens, Kindles, or smartphones. What you have is a situation where you have all of these ways to distribute and consume media, and most of these media players, I mean, look at the biggest newspapers, usually... The person who deals with the online stuff is someone who's been repurposed from the from the design department. They're not someone who has a real understanding of how distribution works, how how promotion works. That typically they're the person that knows how to use the HTML editor. So, oh yeah, make them the web editor. What what we don't have at a lot of media companies is a title that I that I came up with a couple of years ago actually called the digital strategist. The person that understands the crossover points between traditional media and new media and how to properly not just repurpose, but scale media. And so when, you know, in, into the appropriate distribution format. So when you talk about what happened with, um, with Hilkovich and the O'Hare episode, you guys make a very good point. I mean, they got more hits on that on their website in January of 2007 than they had ever gotten on anything, and they figured it was like a one-time blip because of the fact that it didn't fit into any of the models they had, any of the predictive models. So they didn't know what to do with that. They didn't know how to capitalize on that, where if they had had a better understanding of the growth of the digital media world, Especially where it's at now. I mean, this is something that is not going away. And with more and more people consuming their news on their smartphones, it, it's, it's creating yet more opportunities that, like I said, we're in a transitional state at the moment. You know, there are all these opportunities, but most of the people who have power are part of the old guard, and they're simply scared of this stuff. Well, look at what's happening in, in the Tribzone backyard. Roger Marsh, the National Examiner. This guy's with me fine. He writes uh, a blog that appears, oh, I guess it's updated a couple times a day and even on weekends. This guy, mm -hmm. back in June, I guess it was, got his one million hit hmm. in June, just six months into his, you know, into his gig there. And I'm thinking, how, <laughs> how can those smart guys, and they are smart, you know, sitting there in management level with, you know, a, a, a I hate to say it, but a fading medium, the print medium, how can they not be cognizant? And look at what he's writing about, and look at the hits that he's getting. Yeah, it drives me nuts. hate to see it. 
it'll just take time. That's all. It'll just take time. And like I said, we're in a transitional phase right now. And so when you're in that transitional phase, people are scrambling to hold on to their jobs. And one of the last things they want to do is take risks. Uh, <laughs> risk aversion right now is at an all-time high. You know, people are getting very conservative about will the, where they will try to generate new uh, uh, revenue sources, even though it's pretty clear that, you know, we know what the new distribution medium is. We just don't know how to productize for it. And, and by the way, I mean, that's the same challenge that we face here with the Paracast, where we have a, a really strong audience, and it's a very highly qualified audience of people. But we haven't figured out how to monetize this. Part of it is that Gene and I are not businessmen, really. We're just we're journalists, really, more than anything else. We're technologists that have been writing about technology for a long time, um, and we also happen to be really interested in this topic. But we're not we're not businessmen. We don't know what the hell we're doing. So you, you know, we're kind of generating this content by the seat of our pants, and the the momentum we we, we we've gotten with this is that is such where it feels like something wants to happen. It's like something's going to break with the Paracast in a major way based on, look, we get at least every day, at least a, a long piece of email from someone who's listened to the show from around the world who says, thank you for providing this incredibly wonderful, rational uh, outlet for discussing these topics. The, the demand is out there, and we see it with our numbers. It, it's just that transitional phase where, you know, people, if they want to find us, they can, but they have to try. And there's something about the existing model of sitting down at your TV, turning it on, and switching to a channel, and not having to go out and search for stuff. You know, the problem with the Internet, the Internet is very, very wide. It's a big place. And search engines are not that particularly smart about stuff. So, you know, it's a transitional state right now, and I think that certainly what the Internet does is it, it creates a level playing field in that people who do want to find good content now can go out there, and if they want to spend the time, and of course that's the problem, time, it's, it's at a premium for everybody given the increased stress on our lives. But if you want to go out and find that information, it's possible in the way that Leslie, people find your website and people find the work that you're doing and the links on your site if they're looking for credible, rational information. And Billy, in the case of your blog, people go there to get the reasonable, centrist view of what's going on where you're not making claims one way or another, but you're doing things like pointing out the ridiculous conversation between the head of the exopolitical movement and uh, a humble podcasting entity such as myself. <laughs> You're the one place where people will go read about what that exchange was in that great piece you wrote up about us, where you know you, you had the, the the decency and the integrity to to realize that a real conversation had been going on, a real debate, and somebody really put their foot in their mouths. You're you're objective enough to call it like it is. And in that sense, I mean, I wanted to have you on the show because I think it's important to recognize that contribution you've made in being not only the mainstream media's lone little place for talking about this, but also a reasonable centrist voice in a time when, at every level of our media, at every level of what seems to be our, our national dis discourse, extreme polarization seems to be the name of the game right now. 
Well, people pay for this. See, that that's the thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it goes back to why is this not a more compelling issue, UFOs in general? And I've always tried to ask people, really smart people, is how can you convince people out there on the fence, if that's where they are, that this is a pocketbook issue? If you can convince them that it's a pocketbook issue, then you've crossed a threshold. And I'm not quite sure how to do that in a very compelling, convincing fashion. That's elusive to me. Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest on all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. Pocketbook issues. Our yeah. pocketbook issue is to break and tell everybody the talks. <laughs> Leslie Kane joining us on the Powercast this week discussing the treatment of this entire world of UFOs by the media. Now, and that's an important point, pocketbook issues. As far as the media is concerned, if they can sell it, you know, if they can get sponsors for a UFO show every week and of course they've had certain ufo shows we won't mention but if they could find sponsors for it if newspapers can sell ads surrounding that particular column they'll run it and there's no other reason why they'd run it one of the wonderful things about ufos is it's so bipartisan i mean it does seem <laughs> to bring lots of different political perspectives together they may be really wackadoodle but you know what it does forge some odd alliances that's for sure i'd say that's an absolute truth i think i don't want to i don't want to like make light of this and i think leslie's about i'm going to say something yes leslie will hit me when i say this but I think if there's some way we could combine UFOs and sex, we'd be on it. Well, that's the title that have, the titles that have been suggested to me are like Sex, Lies, and UFOs. A lot of good book titles. Or the Sex, Lies, the running joke here is about how you're going to get sex in the book title, and then maybe it will sell. I think it's a great idea. You like I Sex, Lies, it. and UFOs? Absolutely. Definitely. I like that a lot. <laughs> Just so you have to actually deliver some sex in there, otherwise... That's people... the problem. Yeah, that's like the problem. Um... But that's what the probes are all about, right? <laughs> yeah, but I'm not talking about those kinds. Kind of things. I gotta leave that to other people. I'm stuck. Well, you know, well, I think, and, and this ends up bringing up a point, like with the people who do exopolitics and uh, the people who take that extreme position. I think what they try to do is they try to stir religion into the mix. They have the idea that religion sells. Um, and if you turn on late night television in the United States, it seems like 
you know, there, there are some crazy preacher people out there. There's that one very striking looking tall woman who goes on in voices and has got like these blackboards with behind her with Hebrew written out. And she's like, it's incredibly striking, beautiful woman. I don't know her name, but she goes off into this really sort of fringy, extreme religious stuff. And from what I gather, she has some huge viewership because she's actually been able to combine her really stunning looks with sort of fringy religious content that I think any rational person looks at and says, you know, what the heck is this? But again, it seems like with the, the more extreme proponents in the UFO field, what they've literally done is sort of try to take it down the route of uh, religion and messianic promises. I mean, hence the, you know, people like Peckman and Romanek getting on or, shows, you know, like David Letterman. How did that happen? Or even the Raelians back oh, late August. <laughs> I, I went down to what they were calling boob stock. I'm not kidding you. There was uh, in Miami <laughs> yep. Beach. Did you, yep. did you read about that? I sure did. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. And so you had these topless chicks, you know, who are part of this um, Gee, I hate to call anything a cult these days. It's a cult. But, no, but it is. It's a cult. Yeah, and and there they are in in public, and they did draw a bit of a crowd. So you did have the the sex, and maybe you could get the Raelians to have their own TV show, you know, with these topless chicks and stuff, and you have them talking about their conspiracy theories and whatever, and you get yourself a ratings winner there, pal. Oh man, uh, you know, and you don't want it to devolve into something like this, but. It's sad in that there does seem like in the mainstream media, there is a de-evolution. And this is, again, a place where I personally see the Internet picking up the slack and delivering this idea of vertical broadcasting. You know, and this is something, this is an exercise we've had with the Paracast where, you know, we're referred to as a podcast. But Gene and I work very hard to rebrand that as internet radio. You don't have to listen to this on an iPod. You can listen to it on your computer. You can listen to it on any number of playback devices. And really what this is about is breaking down the, the restraints of the traditional distribution models that have existed and, and really just trying to, you know, cast your content into a wired, wider field. And, you know, outside of some hosting cost issues, this is certainly possible. And things like YouTube have proven that for now, at least. And this, is, of course, is always subject to change. But there are ways to get someone else to bear the brunt of the cost of bandwidth. So if you want to put something up on YouTube, if you want to put a piece of video up, you can do that. And you cannot have to get hammered on the extensive broadband uh, bandwidth costs that you would incur if you put a piece of, of video marketing material up on your own site and all of a sudden it became a viral hit and 10 million people were looking at it, you know, it sounds all great in theory, but in practice, if you do that, then you get the, the ISP bill and you find out that, you know, so many people watched your thing. Now you're being assessed some huge amount of money. It won't so, come that far, David. What will happen is they'll block your site. The host, whoever's handling your particular Internet situation, they will write to you or they will just pull the plug. They won't let your site go on. Now, we have a pretty big server here, and I'll tell you this because it really happened this week. I got an email from one of our server management people from our web host, and he said, you know, you're getting a hell of a lot of traffic. we got to look into the situation here of maybe giving you a separate uplink port because we were almost exceeding a fairly high bandwidth level. And that's a fact. So, I'm not making it up just to toot our own horn. Of course, that would mean that if we were getting that kind of traffic 
all the time and not just in peaks, hopefully advertisers would take notice. We'd make maybe a few bucks to pay for all that bandwidth. But otherwise, what will happen is that they'll pull the plug. This is true when you read all those ads. You know, unlimited bandwidth, host your site for $3. Doesn't happen if you get really mentioned on Slashdot or Dig or anywhere where you'll get tons of traffic, they will pull the plug before they let it happen. Well, that's why I suggested to Leslie that she, you know, work out something with Random House where they can host a high quality version of that press conference because I know, you know, Leslie, I, I think, you know, and I've talked to you about this before and I talked to James about it, you know, that it was really important to get that out there because people do need to see it. People do need to see unabridged versions of his content. You know, this has always been the problem in the mainstream media. Concision is the name of the game. Um, certainly in broadcast media, you know, the whole, the whole thing is make your point in like three minutes. If you can't, no one's got the bandwidth to, uh, to, to listen and uh, you'll be marginalized. And yeah, so, I mean, I agree. I agree with you how important that is, David, for people to sit yeah. down and just watch that press conference. One person follows the next. You got to right. see the whole gestalt of the whole thing. And um, the only reason we haven't had it out there is because of James is working, is producing a film that's basically built around that press conference. And mm -hmm. so he's he's got executive producers and other people that are involved with his team. And it was just a decision that was made that they had to withhold this in order to allow the film to be the the, the first vehicle for. To be, you know, to be portrayed in. It wasn't just James's decision. So but now that his movie's out, and once it gets on to the, uh, you know, it's going to be aired again on the History Channel. Then, you know, it'll be a different story. But there's all kinds of issues when you, you know, in terms of ownership of film and and having rights to certain material and all that kind of right. stuff that right. come into play. So that's the only reason it hasn't been uh, out there. And I, I, but I really agree with you. It's an extremely powerful thing to watch. And, you know. and I think if people saw that whole thing, they'd be more likely to want to watch the film. I mean, you know, one thing feeds the other, really. Yeah, well, uh, maybe James could put it up on his site right now, you know, so I can discuss that now that uh, the film is out. Uh, I think that would be a great thing for, for everybody involved. And, you know, because we want to see the hard work. And, and, you know, Leslie, we know about the hard work that you've been doing behind the scenes for a long time. You don't seek the kind of visibility that other far less credible people do in this field. You know, we, we want to see you succeed because we feel that the tone that you're setting and the tone that you've been promoting, Billy, uh, we think it lines up pretty well with our own mission here, which is to try to create rational, reasonable discussion around what is obviously not a silly topic. It's kind of hard to believe that people don't find this really fascinating. Yes, you know, things are complicated in life, but, you know, people have their, their issues and the stresses of their day-to-day -day lives. But at the same time, this is one of the greatest mysteries that's confronted humanity. And how can one not be interested in this topic? And that's what you you really want all of those higher management people at the different publishing houses and the media conglomerates to understand. Hey, you know what? Uh, people are always going to be interested in this stuff. And there is a lot of great stuff out there, like James has dug up for his documentaries, Leslie, like you found great witnesses for, and like the stories that you covered, Billy. I mean, there's a lot of really interesting stuff out there besides the ridiculous stuff. We're just about out of time. Billy, can you tell our listeners where they can find your blog? We want to oh. increase the hit count. We want to make sure everybody <laughs> sees it. They can just Google uh, Billy Cox and Devoid, D-E, other word, V-O-I-D, or they can go to the Sarasota Herald Tribune, and they can pick it up under the blog's rail there on the left-hand side. 
Thank you. <laughs> and when they do that, by the way, make sure that you are going to look for his blog, not for the musician who used to work with Jimi Hendrix. Right, or playing second base for the old Brooklyn Dodgers. I did that a long time ago. <laughs> that was in the previous incarnation. Exactly. Leslie, you're going to hang around for the second hour where we'll be joined by James Fox, and we'll talk about the new version of his documentary that's been on the History Channel and will be on the History Channel again a few days after the show debuts. So Billy Cox, Leslie Kane, thanks for joining us. We'll be back on the other side of the Paracast. Thanks, guys. Thanks, folks. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you've heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. We're back with Leslie Kane, now joined by James Fox who is responsible for a new documentary on UFOs called I Know What I Saw. We have the last one, Out of the Blue. We have I Know What I Saw that's been on the History Channel, will be broadcast again on the History Channel, and it will be the 19th of October, which will be tomorrow when you hear the show, and it will be 9 p.m. Eastern Time, and then you can factor in all the various times wherever you're going. James, welcome back. Thank you. Hearing good things about the flick, the question I guess our listeners would worry about or concern themselves about would be, what changes did you make between this and the original documentary? Uh, when you say the original documentary, are you referring to Out of the Blue? I'm Correct. referring to the Out of the Blue, then there's an enhanced Out of the Blue, and then we have this, right? Yes. Well, the enhanced Out of the Blue was never officially released. It's never been broadcast. And it sort of morphed into I Know What I Saw. So although it does contain some some of the same cases and some of the same content, I'd say it's about 75% new. In other words, we went and shot additional material. We shot it on HD, hired proper um, sound guys, and so the, the level of production is much higher. The storyline is slightly different. It's more of a personal journey of me trying to get to the bottom of well, what's been going on. All right. If I was looking at version number one and the History Channel version, are there things that you took out that I would notice or should notice? From Out of the Blue? Yes. Well, for starters, we took out Peter Coyote, who narrated Out of the Blue, uh, and it became uh, me narrating. And initially, we'd, we'd set out for me to do partial narration and keep Peter's voice as narrator in there, but then it just sort of worked out more cohesive just having me. So um, the Condon Report the uh, Salas and Bob Jacobs cases, the uh, limitations for space exploration by the speed of light. We, we interviewed some, some NASA scientists, Jet Propulsion Laboratory. That's all been taken out. As I said, the whole Conan section was taken out. The Russian section, James. The Russian section right, was taken right. out. We elaborate uh, quite uh, heavily on the Cometa report. We actually went to France. We spoke with uh, General Dennis Letty, who spearheaded the Cometa report. 
Uh, we talked to Jack Padnay at CNES. Actually, Leslie was with me on that one, as well as as mm-hmm. Dennis Letty. So we sort of expanded on that whole the Cometa report and and uh, what was it, 2007, Leslie, where the French government or CNES released 50 years right. of previously classified documents. Right, and all that's new. And I think James, one of the major differences, though, with Out of the Blue is, of course, that this new film is built around the press conference, which hadn't even taken place when Out of the Blue was put together. Yeah, and initially we were going to incorporate that press conference into Out of the Blue, and then I got some advice from people in the, in the, in the industry, TV industry, to just make a whole new movie. Yeah, and it's so, really a lot of that was because what makes it new is that press conference, which is sort of the spine of the whole movie. You know, you keep going back to people at the press conference, and then you move from there to expanding on their particular cases and stories, but it has that sort of backbone of being the press conference. And the second point that James made about the fact that this is about his personal journey and he narrates it is also a major change. Yeah, it's a more and, personal uh, film. Yeah, I remember people saying, well, how are you going to make a movie revolving around a press conference? And I remember thinking, well, Al Gore made a film about a <laughs> presentation, so if he did it, we can do it over a press conference, you know, and, and to keep it from being too static and dry, we uh, we did additional testimonial interviews and sort of went back in time as the people testified at the podium. So it kind of keeps it moving. I think what really works about it being based on that press conference is that you have people that are just incredibly highly credible. And so what you keep going back to is this foundation of credibility that perhaps uh, plagues other documentaries in that they'll have one or two credible sources and then they'll sort of go off into many tangents you guys kept coming back to that core foundation of credible military witnesses and military sources that are really not anybody whose integrity can really be questioned. Really, I think in that sense, it was really successful. James, what has been the the feedback you've gotten so far from the History Channel and from the the viewing audience? What kind of feedback have you received? Well, the people that that tuned in. I mean, we didn't do a whole lot of promotion leading up to it because we were, it was so precarious as to whether or not we were going to make the, the air date. But I think I know that myself as well as the History Channel were reluctant to do too much publicity prior to tentative broadcast date of October 4th. And so we kind of fell short there, but, but the ratings steadily climbed as the film came on. It just did a, more and more people tuned in. The general response I've gotten is this is sort of the UFO film we've kind of all been waiting for. And, and Leslie's uh, a very large part responsible for helping me uh, weed out, separate the wheat from the chaff, I guess one would say, with maintaining the level of credibility that it did. I mean, Leslie really uh, helped you know pick a lot of the witnesses that testified at the press club and played a very integral role with that. And also encouraging me to take a better look with photographs and video footage that, that we present. I wanted to ask you, James, regarding the other factor of evaluating ratings, the DVR factor. Lots of shows these days, most of their rating, or even up to half their rating, comes from people who time shift. Yeah, well, you know, that's another thing that's interesting because I think, isn't it difficult for them to determine when people record something on DVR whether or not they're actually watching it? And I think that uh, I'd like to encourage people to, to, to actually tune in to the broadcast as it's happening, I think that um, I think that would that would certainly improve the ratings. Well, they have a sampling procedure, I think, that works with TiVo. I don't know if it works with the satellite networks or with the cable networks, but I'm always seeing DVR figures. You know, I'll see, for example, like the Sci-Fi Channel is very much the kind of channel 
that has DVR watching. And then you'd see like a week later, well, the DVR ratings are such and though. So there must be something they're doing to estimate this. I don't know what they're doing or how they're doing it, but that's the point. In terms of looking at what you added and the reaction to it, and I see obviously that the History Channel is running it again. Do you plan beyond this to actually have a DVD version or what? Yes, we've already actually made the DVD version. I think it's scheduled for a December or January release. Uh, we're going to have a photo gallery uh, of the actual National Press Club uh, insert with the DVD, as well as uh, I think it's like 35, 40 minutes of additional interviews, material, outtakes. Yeah, like I said, I don't have a fixed date, but I think it's December, January for the release of that, and that'll be advertised uh, on the History Channel. The History already has a foundation of distribution in place, so they represented us both in the U.S. and Canada for that, and then we're going to go with with a worldwide distribution with another company. By the way, I, I just got word back that there's a, an annual event called MIPCOM. It's in the south of France, Cannes, and it's where program acquisitions people from all around the world meet and consider programming, and, and ours was very nicely received, apparently. I just found that out. So uh, we're in the workings of, of getting worldwide distribution for the film, both broadcast and DVD. There's something that uh, came up with Leslie in the first hour that we recorded, uh, James, and I'm going to make this plea to you now. I don't know if it's even possible, but... But having seen the entire press conference that this is based on, the power of the testimony of the people who were at that press conference, the you know, sort of the unrelenting intensity of it, uh, I personally think is extremely compelling. I know you're saying you're going to have additional materials out there. I said this to Leslie. I'll say this to, to you now, and Leslie can hit me for this later. Maybe you can hit me for this later, too, for bringing it up. But We all like to hit David, by the way. Yeah. So I'm sure we understand <laughs> right. Is there any way to include the full video of the full press conference in the DVD release or somehow get it hosted online? That's a very, very good idea. As a matter of fact, we were actually even considering having three-pack. One would be the unreleased uh, version of Out of the Blue with Peter Coyote. One would be the raw material from the National Press Club, which we have. And then the other one would be I Know What I Saw with Outtakes. So that's certainly uh, a possibility that we are seriously considering. I, I would just strongly urge you to do that, James, because I understand in terms of visual storytelling the importance of things like having a musical bed underneath the things, the issue of uh, you know, visualization materials and, 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 and the types of creative cutting and editing that's required to keep a story interesting for two hours. Um, I'm fully aware of all the issues that come up with that. But like I said, I, I think there is a very strong power to seeing the press conference in its entirety, which really emphasizes and underscores the seriousness of this in a way that, uh, you know, not having a music bed, not having any extraneous materials. I know that for the typical television viewing audience, the, the networks sort of have the sense that people don't have the attention span, that people will get bored of watching a press conference for, you know, an hour or two hours. Um, I think that for people who are really interested in, this, in these topics, they're really hungry for something like that. And um, I, I just, you know, the, the fact that you're considering it is really great. I would plead with you to please make that so, because I think it really, all it does is just underscore the seriousness and the rationality of what you're presenting. And in that sense, I think it's critical that you're addressing this idea that there is something serious going on. You're not wrapping any kind of sensationalistic uh, padding around it. And I think that that's really, it's essential because of the way this topic is always addressed. I mean, you've been on 
the Larry King show, when they come back from commercials, there's the spooky theremin music and the visuals of UFOs flying around cows and then the invariable Billy Meyer image that they use, which, you know, really just sort of sets the stage so that when Shermer opens his mouth and says things that are unsubstantiated, that are really ignorant, uh, the audience has sort of been primed for that. And I know that you've been in the middle of that. And I have to tell you, as someone who's watched you deal with that, it's I'm one of those people that's that gets really frustrated because I see that you're you're kind of going into a stacked game. You know, I you know I bring that up with the producers a lot of times, and it seems to be this ongoing argument back and forth. Some of them are saying, "Look, we don't want all this," but they've got the tech department sort of they're just doing kind of their job, and they're just doing the standard of what they think is expected. And um, I, you know, I, I have some influence on that, and. and Possibly more for upcoming shows, and, and I will do my best uh, I can to to avoid right. that kind of tongue-in-cheek presentation because it bothers me and it bothers a lot of people of, of, of the the other panelists. And, and I don't even think Larry's too crazy about it either. So, <laughs> well, and on your DVD release, you know, it, it's it's your show, man. So you've already got really good stuff. How many times have I watched Out of the Blue? You were actually really great in sending us copies of that, those limited edition copies when we first had you on the show. And I have to tell you, I treasure those DVDs. You know, this is stuff that, this is one of the perks of doing the Paracast is that we get to get material like this and I get to watch it over and over again. There, there aren't many things, especially related to this material, to these topics, that I will watch repeatedly. But your work, I think really, it survives multiple viewings really well. So, you know, you've got an opportunity here. You know, I beg and plead, and I'll even say here and here now, you come up with that triple pack set, I'll send you money for it. You know, I won't ask you for some comp copy. I'll, I'm happy to send you money and, and support the effort. And I think, you know, our, our, I know our listeners are, are dying to be able to buy this thing, you know, because of the problem, of course, being that you've got people who listen to the Paracast, they're from around the world, and they can't all get the broadcast, and they're, they're dying, they're hungry to have good content about this that's not sensationalistic, that's not silly. We'll get into it a little bit later in the hour. There's pretty much nothing but meat in what you're making, and that's pretty rare in this genre. You know, it's funny you, you say that. I, I just put a, a note down for me to discuss that exactly that point with the uh, inclusion of the disc to the people putting this DVD package together, so I will definitely push for that. You know, it's funny. I go back to the program acquisition people at uh, any or History Channel. You know, he said he was late in the afternoon. He was kind of tired and hungry. He was ready to go home. And somebody pretty well known in the industry had given him a copy, thank God, of I Know What I Saw on DVD. And he said, you know, quite honestly, James, I put it in thinking I'd probably shut it off in about two minutes. And I actually sat on the edge of my seat for the whole presentation. And at one point he said he looked over and it was, I don't know, seven, eight o'clock, and the janitor had stopped vacuum cleaning in the hallway, <laughs> left the door slightly jar, and was glued to the TV screen. And they sort of looked at each other, and we had this moment, I looked over at the janitor, and the janitor looked at me, and he said, I think we've got, some, I think we've got something here. <laughs> you know, and, and it was exactly that. It was, he said, uh, he uh, congratulated on the fact that it wasn't just a bunch of fluff, and we actually delivered the goods. So, but I do appreciate yeah. you saying that, I, and, and we, we worked very hard to do that. Really did. I think you accomplished it. And, you know, I'll, I'll say this now. And again, uh, I can almost see Leslie getting ready to hit me over there uh, on, on, on her connection side. There's only one thing and only one thing in I Know What I Saw 
that that I have a concern about. There's only one thing, and I know that both myself and Bruce McAbee, Dr. McAbee, we both, the only issue that either of us have, and, and he actually said this on, on a mailing list, there was a piece of footage in there, James, from uh, Celia, Colorado, that you had me look at Ooh, yeah, and do some analysis work on, that originally I said to Leslie, this is really interesting. And it turns out that Dr. McAbee, way back when, when he first looked at it, also thought it was very interesting. Both of us now feel that it's not interesting. Potentially, it's problematic. And it comes back down to provenance and the, the, the issue of whether or not this footage had the number of witnesses that the, the, the guy who shot it claims it did. On the outside, it looks like fascinating footage. I know that you, you, you didn't spend too much time on it, but you certainly featured it in the documentary. It's the one thing that, had I been you, I would have not put it in there. And I, I certainly, honestly, don't think you needed it. Um, in terms of creating the case that you're trying to make in the documentary, I don't know that it served the purpose. And my concern about it is that because Dr. Maccabee since he first analyzed it, has come back now and sort of expressed some concerns about his original analysis. And, and I did the same thing. I actually took time to motion stabilize a big chunk of that. And what I was seeing kind of made me think, mm, this is not only is it not quite right, but I actually looked and saw that I, I could not find any historical precedent for something that looked quite like it. There were some things that looked a little like it, but nothing that looked quite like it. So that's the only issue that I'll bring up out of my own integrity because of the fact that I did take time, I did motion stabilize that footage that you sent me, and I looked at it very carefully, and I expressed my concern to Leslie. So Leslie got in touch with me about that, and, uh, you know, uh, and I mentioned to Leslie that I probably should have sent you, I just sent you a clip, I should have sent you all of whatever it was, 15, 20 minutes of it, Right. Because uh, for me, knowing that there were three witnesses looking at this object for over 20 minutes, I just found it um, very difficult to, to, to feel that it was light passing through a cobweb or something, uh, especially if you see uh, when he pulls the camera back, right back, you have a point of reference with the roof of the house. You can actually see the cameras maintaining stationary, relatively stationary position and the object shoots across the sky probably several inches on the screen. And at the same time, the witnesses are saying, my God, it just moved, you know, all this. It just moved over probably at least 100 miles in a matter of a blink of an eye. And you see that, and I probably should have included that in there, but knowing that and having talked to uh, two of the witnesses, I'm quite convinced that it's not a cobweb. Um, all right. ho however, um, you know, if Bruce McAbee can recreate that in his backyard, under the right light conditions, I'd love to see it. Well, knowing that, then you, you actually had hands-on to some of the witnesses kind of makes it different, right? And I did not know that. So, yeah, I um, to the, Well, I talked to the guy before. He, he's dead now, but I talked to him, and then I also talked to the daughter. There's a third witness that actually I've been trying to get a hold of. Cheryl, mm -hmm. Edward's wife, a widow, uh, is trying to put me in touch with him, but I, I've been sort of on the back burner lately. But I, but I right. have, like I said, I had discussions. So for you know, for three people with the naked eye, twenty minutes being mesmerized by a cobweb, to me, this doesn't doesn't really add. <laughs> all right, all right. No, I mean, you know, that's why I said it's the only point, and and I didn't, I didn't, I, you're right. I only saw a very small piece. I did not see all of it, so I'll qualify with that. As qualify, I wanted to ask you a question. Speaking of the same thing, and that is, 
with regard to the original film, so I might be missing something here. Maybe we'd be curious because you mentioned it in our previous episode. You had a section in which you interviewed Philip Corso in the original film. Was that carried through to the new one? No, no. No, no. no. I, I, I didn't touch on Roswell, Area 51. Matter of fact, the only person in the whole film, I think, that uses the word extraterrestrial, I believe, although it's alluded to a couple of times, uh, one by General Dennis Letty, I think he just says they come from somewhere else, is Jacques Patnay of CNES, where he says mm-hmm. a very small percentage could be extraterrestrial visitation. And right. the response on camera was, wow, that's a pretty big story. And I had a good laugh and said, yeah, it's a huge story. So basically um, here in this film, you're not reaching a conclusion. You're just painting a picture of something that we don't understand that demands more investigation. I think I pretty much conclude at the end, and I can almost recite this verbatim, uh, either someone is in possession of revolutionary technology for over 50 years, uh, in which case that's, that's, a pretty, uh, that's a pretty big story in itself. And you guys are all obviously very well aware of the type of uh, flight performances these craft allegedly perform or were being visited. So either way, it's a big story. Sure, absolutely. Actually, that footage you have with Ricky Soros was, uh, was really interesting. That that was a real coup because you know I, you hear stuff about him secondhand and we we've interviewed a few people on the show that talked about him you know you getting secondhand sort of representations of what he said but guy strikes me as being absolutely grounded and just not the kind of guy who's going to make this stuff up and when he's talking about this thing completely covering all of his visual field of view you know you you start talking about the kind of scales that even in black ops stuff and in secret projects we don't have anything that big that moves under its own uh, uh power we just don't and so he took a couple of months to get to come forward you know the the initial report he gave us uh was was he said i don't want any cameras rolling any recording devices no photographs taken mm-hmm. uh, and he walked us out and my whole camera crew and he walked us out to the location in the woods near his house and I was riveted. I mean, people ask me quite, o- quite often, actually, uh, who, uh, who do I find some of the more compelling witnesses? And mm-hmm. I, I, I labeled him as one of them. Yeah. He's a, he's a very simple and honest character. Um, he wasn't looking for the attention. I had to hunt him down, and I had to persuade him over two months to finally come forward on, on camera. I think and that was a real coup. Yeah, he almost right, met his entire family. It was, it was, it was having a, somewhat of a bad impact, I guess, on his marriage. And, you know, but he's sticking to his story. He's like, look, this is what I saw. I don't know where it came from. I don't know if it's ours or what, but this is what I saw. And, um, right. I don't know, I just found his, his story very, very compelling. Agreed. I think it was one of the best little pieces of testimony, um, in, in the documentary. There's something else I want to bring up be- before we forget because, um, we re- recently had an episode where we had a self-professed skeptic come on and uh, give us one of these spiels about how he doesn't believe in UFOs. So we started going down cases and talking about cases. And uh, the case of, um, uh, well, the multiple situations with Gordon Cooper came up. And there's just something I want, I, want, I want you to clarify because I know that we were originally under the impression that when Cooper talks about this film footage of this craft landing, uh, at Edwards Air Force Base, the way it almost sounds was that he was out there shooting this thing with his crew. But correct, correct us in that he wasn't. He he wasn't out there with these guys shooting the thing. He was who they took the film to. He was sort of in the position of command 
to pass that up to the higher-ups, but he wasn't a direct witness to that event. Is that correct, James? That is correct. He was supervising the installation of a, of a, of a landing facility for F-86 fighter jets, and the uh, number of, of people had witnessed this event and, and, and filmed it. He had the film footage um, developed, and he looked at the film footage. He held it up to light and looked at the disc on the ground, saw the film footage, and he personally handed it over to... Uh, so a courier jet that came in from mm-hmm. Washington and was never seen or heard from again. Mm-hmm. And this is separate from the UFOs that he talked about seeing as a fighter pilot yes. in the air. Yeah, yeah, com- yeah, exactly. Right, right. Separate. completely separate. I, thing. I have him on. I have him on camera, actually, with with both those uh, incidents, discussing both both those incidents. Another thing I put in the outtakes that's going to be coming up is him basically responding to some criticism as to whether or not he ever followed up on what happened to that footage. And he very sharply kind of says, you know, look, I'm not in the business of selling UFOs or convincing anyone that UFOs are real. I know what I believe. And, mm-hmm. uh, well, you know, whether you believe me or not, I, I couldn't care less. You know, it's like I, just, right. I, couldn't, I couldn't care less. I'm <laughs> not in the business of selling this information or selling this story, you know. Turning point for my father was meeting Cooper, you know, because he was an icon from my dad's generation. Sure. And, uh, you know, hearing that right from the horse's mouth really, really moved my dad. I, my dad's a mainstream journalist, so. He was discouraging me from involving myself in this subject matter for years, and that was one of one of the turning points for him. Was meeting Cooper and, and you know talking to him about this incident off the off the record and as well on the record. So. Mm-hmm. You hear it on TV. You hear it on radio. Cash for gold. Yes, it's an enticing phrase during these challenging days, but the real question is how much cash are you going to get for your gold and silver? Are you going to get the best value? Well, you can get the best price from a company whose owners have decades of experience in the business. Welcome to Goldbug. The folks at Goldbug warn you that many of those high-budget gold buyers are paying far less than you deserve for your gold and silver. Goldbug will give you top dollar each and every time. To learn more, call 1-866-596-6134. That number again, 1-866-596-6134 for Goldbug. Or visit us online at goldbug.com. That's Goldbug with two Gs, goldbug.com. Hi, this is Michelle from Namecheat. We don't have millions of dollars to get race car drivers or models to endorse us. But we will do everything we can to make those who buy domains or web hosting from us as happy as possible. We offer a free SSL as well as free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers or troublemakers. We won't bug you with obnoxious upsells when you check out or in your inbox. But most importantly, our customer service team really cares about you. It's what we pride ourselves in the most because it's your endorsement that means the most to us. If you like what you hear, get deals on both our domains and our web hosting at radio.namecheap.com, radio.namecheap.com, and be sure to play our contest by following us on Twitter. Thanks, Michelle. And by the way, listeners, please use the coupon code Radio Day. That's Radio Day, one word, for special discounts at Namecheap. Hi, this is Nick Pope. You're listening to The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We have James Fox, who is director and host, by the way, of I Know What I Saw, 
which has been on the History Channel and will be repeated again on Monday, October 19th, the day after the show is scheduled. If you missed it, by the way, okay, it will be coming out, what, in a few months on DVD, so watch for the release information. There'll be extra footage, all the goodies you see in a DVD. And I presume it'll be available in Blu-ray. Is that right, James? I don't know about that yet. Okay. We hope it will because they shot in high definition. We also have Leslie Kane, who is an investigative journalist, who also, by the way, worked with James in putting all this stuff together. And, you know, it has to stand head and shoulders above so many other efforts in the UFO field. Because right now, of course, we see exopolitics and other nonsense going on. And just getting your voice heard with all that shouting going on has got to be really difficult. And that you were able to do it, James, is certainly a tribute to a lot of years of hard work. And you convinced your dad, which is more important than anything. <laughs> yeah, I did. He's, he's definitely in my corner now. <laughs> you say he was a mainstream journalist, by the way. Do you want to say where he writes for? Oh, he, he's written for pretty much every publication on the shelf, like uh, everything from Sports Illustrated, Car and Driver. He used to work for True, Defunct Now. He's done articles for Playboy, Rolling Stone, PC Computer Magazine. Uh, stuff on uh, Stephen Hawking to race car driver Dan Green. He's done a number of things. He's written a couple of novels. What couple. name are we looking for here? His name is Charles Fox. Okay. But yeah, he was he was uh, one of my big, biggest critics embarking on this on this subject. And as a matter of fact, he got the rest of, of my family from all over. I was born in England, actually. Most of my family lived in Europe. And they were sort of sending me emails and phone calls and what are you getting yourself into? <laughs> Don't waste your life. And you know, you really need to reconsider, and that just fueled my passion even more. So, so I, I, I thank them for doing that. <laughs> so, Leslie, um, you, you've been very quiet during this whole thing because I guess you, you've got the voodoo doll of me you're sticking pins in. But um, why do you have this idea, David? You don't have to have this idea that I want to that you're doing anything <laughs> terrible. And you have every right to ask James about that footage. It's an interesting discussion. No, no, no. But um. Well, you know, when I, I know there are times when you and I have spoken off air and, uh, you know, we, you and I both get frustrated about a lot of the same stuff revolving around this field. Um, you know, the, the entire exopolitical movement, which has infuriated both of us with the fact that they basically poison the pool. So, so my question to you, Leslie, um, and, and you can follow up on this, James, you know, they're going to see this documentary, uh, the powers that are kind of, promoting the exopolitical view of disclosure. And they're going to claim that basically you're, you're both fighting the same fight. I mean, in this documentary, James, you're making a strong case, and a number of the people who are interviewed are saying, hey, you know, the government should give up the secrets. They should tell us what they know. And the exopolitical people basically, in their own way, are sort of saying the same thing. So when, when they point to this documentary and say, hey, look, we told you, see, look what this is. This is basically saying the same thing we're saying. Um, and people ask you about that, Leslie. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what's your response to that? I mean, when people say, well, you're both fighting for the same thing, why don't you sit down and make peace? And I'm only I'm asking you this because we get the same kind of feedback from people. And I'm wondering, yeah, well, what's, what's your thoughts I mean about that? First of all, this is James's film and not mine. I was, right. you know, a hired hand to assist him, and I, I lent him all of my best knowledge and abilities on the film. You know, if it were my film, I might have been a little less sort of making the point that James makes about uh, the secrecy issue. 
so for you know, I can't speak for James, but I can I can say for myself and in terms of the exit political thing, I think mm-hmm. ultimately we are all asking for the same thing. I mean, we all want it to be known that UFOs exist and we want it to be known what they are. And I think that the difference is, you know, that the exopolitical people are all, are making the assumption and they state it loud and clear and they bang around with it that we've already figured out what they are. Mm-hmm. I take the position and the people that I work with in the coalition take the position that we have not yet figured that out. The reason being that we haven't figured it out yet to the level that satisfies the status quo, that satisfies the political establishment and that satisfies the scientific establishment. So our approach is to ask them to please, will you please join together with the rest of the world community and figure this out for us because we want to know what they are. And I, that's a strategy that I think is more effective. I think a lot of the difference between the exopolitics people and my strategy, and then James's too, really, is the, is the, is the method that you go about trying to get to the same goal. And I don't think that the exopolitical strategy is effective. I just think it's a self-defeating strategy. When you go to the Washington Post and tell them, you know, that, that Richardson was a CIA agent and you've had liaisons with extraterrestrials and blah, 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 it's not helpful. It's not effective strategy. That's all. It's mm-hmm. clear as day. Mm-hmm. But um, and I think James hasn't done anything like that. I mean, James's movie hints very strongly at the fact that they could be extraterrestrial, and a lot of the officials actually make those statements themselves. You know, they sort of hint it, but he's not outright saying we've already figured out what they are. And right. you know, the exopolitics people say it's absolutely without question we we have, are being visited by extraterrestrials, and then they have all these claims related to that, which cannot be backed up by any any solid data. And so that's the difference. It has to do with the approach, I think, rather than the ultimate goal. And I'm not interested in in, in, in any sort of mudslinging at all. And, and and one of the things that bothers me about the UFO community, and my myself included, uh, is the bad mouthing that goes along to everybody. It seems like we're so busy arguing and bickering with each other that we're not making headway. It's unfortunate that we can't decide on a common goal and focus our attentions on that uh, and put everything else aside. However, I know through experiences that I've had, that I've had to distance myself uh, from certain people uh, only because some of the witnesses that I felt were very credible were reluctant to work with me if I was, you know, streaming from the hilltop CT and all that sort of thing. Right. I'm not judging anybody. Everyone has a slightly different tactic and a different approach. You know, that's fine for them, but I have a slightly different uh, approach that I feel, I just personally feel, would be a more effective approach. But I'm not interested in... And judging or mudslinging with, with anybody. I just sort of carry, carry on myself. <laughs> you know, and I do think that. also, guys, I mean, I do think that the really the exopolitics community makes it, has very little effect. I mean, you say that they muddy the waters. In my opinion, the only time they muddy the waters is when they get picked up by something like the Washington Post. But most of the time, nobody's paying any attention to them anyway. I um, really pay a lot less attention than I used to, quite honestly, to anything that they're doing. Mm-hmm. I just don't think it really – it never goes anywhere. And, um, you know, I just – I would encourage them to please put out credible information. If, if you could just put out credible information and make use some kind of discernment about what you're going to state publicly and what you're not going to state publicly, regardless of your personal beliefs – yeah. You know, that's all you have to do. And I think some of these people think that if they are convinced that UFOs are extraterrestrials, and therefore that means they should be talking about it like that just because they happen to believe it. You'll also notice that any time we've gone on with a skeptic with Larry King, the only material 
that the skeptic will go with is the alien extraterrestrial, alien extraterrestrial. And I keep saying to them, look, I'm not screaming from the hilltops. E.T. is here. You can't say that I'm saying that. But at the same time, why don't you explain to me this observed technology and where it might come from? Who's in possession of it? You can't deny that there's so much evidence to support the fact that these things are whizzing around in our airspace with impunity. However, uh, you know, until we have one in our possession, not to say we don't, but I, certainly, I can't make the assumption that it's ET. And the argument kind of stops right there. Where are they going to go with it, you know? Every radar return is, is a hoax. Every photograph, every witness is lying. Every witness is hallucinating. I don't think so. Right. And right. That's really, know. that's what needs to be presented as opposed to the claim that they're, that we already know what they are. It's self-defeating. But anyway, well, like I, I'm not here to judge anyone or, or throw a sort of mud fight. I'm really, there's, there's no interest to me. I'm, I'm right. No, we, 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 we understand that. You know, we, and, and part of our job function on the Paracast, like our tagline, separating signal from noise, is, is to try to provide some guidance with this. And, you know, our, our statement is that we, we know there's something going on. We just don't know what it is. And, and that's intellectual honesty. So I think in that sense, we're, we're sort of in the same boat here in that, you know, we recognize that there's something happening. It's, it's when people claim to have absolute answers to sourcing, to motivation, and, and, and proclaim those answers as, as God-given fact, that's when, for, for us, certainly, Gene, uh, I'll say that for both of us, that's when our own force fields go up and we say, well, look, if you claim to know the absolute answers to this, chances are you're, you're, you're going down the wrong path. And some people might call that judgmental. I think we think of it as intellectual honesty because, you know. Remember yeah. Carl Sagan. It always brings me back to Carl Sagan. I think of it all the time. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. You're going to claim that these are ET are here. Where's the proof? And we, exactly. quite honestly, uh, certainly, I don't have it. I don't I, think anybody does. That brings yeah. to the entire discussion right here, and this is the thing that we try to express to some of these people when we get to talk to them. No, we don't know what this is. Maybe lots of people are seeing things we can't identify. We've got photographs. We've got trace evidence. We've got all this stuff. But we don't know that it's E.T. or interdimensional or whatever. We don't know. And until we know, you really can't say, and it just becomes unscientific. And this is something, as you say, the skeptics will seize upon. Hey there, neighbors. Let me talk to you about The Max Sale at www.themaxsale.com. They're proud to announce their second software bundle featuring established and award-winning applications. The Max Sale launches on October 31st. But if you pre-registered now, there is a free gift just for signing up. A free gift. The Max Sale prides itself on giving a fair deal to all developers and partners. Head on over to www.themaxsale.com, www.themaxsale.com to sign up for further information. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. We have James Fox, who is director 
and host of I Know What I Saw. You know, it almost reminds me of that title, you know, I Saw What You Did. Or what was that? Horror I know film? you did last summer or something like that. Right. And I just <laughs> wondered about that because I know that you didn't mean it to be that way. But how the no, title you know, come I about? Didn't have a, I didn't have a title for the film for the longest time. I had a working title because I had to have something called Beyond the Blue. But I said, when the right title comes along, I'll know. And there I was in the editing room for two and a half years listening to multiple witnesses saying, look, don't tell me what I saw. I know what I saw. And it kept ringing with me. I thought, hmm, I know what I saw. So I ran it by a few people, and they said, yeah, I like that. But interestingly enough now, if you Google I know what I saw, we pop up first. <laughs> Excellent. Well, there, there is one thing that I think is very well established in this documentary in, um, in Out of the Blue, in all the stuff you've done so far, uh, uh, James and Leslie, something that, that comes out in uh, the press conference you put together with James a couple of years ago. Uh, one thing we, I think we can say with some degree of confidence is that governments around the world, and especially some some segment of the U.S. military has been collecting a whole lot of very compelling evidence and hiding it away. And when Gordon Cooper talks about passing that footage up the chain and it vanishes, it's clear that that had to end up somewhere, right? I mean, th that's yeah, something no, no, we, we can't say. Let me share something with you really quickly. Um, I was just involved with a, with a video project in Southern California. I worked with this woman Seacrest. Her name was Jan Seacrest. She's in her 70s, and she said, so what else do you do, James? And I ex kind of explained to her what I did, expecting to have this knee-jerk response of, you know, rolling her eyes and this incredulous look on her face. But instead, she got really attentive, and she said, really? She said, well, i got to tell you something. Uh, back in college, the gentleman who was right across from my dorm, she was talking about probably late 50s, early 60s. God, possibly, yeah, possibly even earlier than that. But in any case, it was General Nathan Twining's son, and I think his nickname was Dickie, but I'm not positive. And in any case, he, on a number of occasions, had shared with her and her roommate the fact that uh, he got a tour of some underground department in the Pentagon. This is just what she told me, okay? I'm not saying this is true or not true. Mm -hmm. But this was in the late 50s, and he had a tour. There was a repository somewhere underground in the Pentagon that contained the most incredible film footage, photographic evidence of UFOs uh, ever. And then she personally had seen this. I know it's third hand, but that's something that she passed along to me. And I thought, well, that makes sense. At least we know it's going somewhere. Well, it has to be going somewhere. That's really interesting. You've got a guy who was uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff from, from 57 to 60. Yeah. I'm trying yeah, well, to hold his son right now, by the way. Very compelling. Well, it's got to be somewhere. This stuff has sure. to have been stockpiled somewhere, right? Well, of course. Yeah. No question about it. You know, that they, they, they were gathering this evidence. And, you know, people like to take this to extreme levels. Well, that's where the bodies are. That's where recovered technology is. Meanwhile, someone else in I Know What I Saw makes a statement that is, I think, also very, very prevalent in terms of uh, this show's own thinking about this topic, where you ask a bunch of these guys after the press conference, why the secrecy? You know, what's going on here? Why are they keeping the secret? I personally have a strong feeling that this comes down to the military doing what it thinks its job function is, which is to provide security. And that uh, the, the admission that there are crap, there's a technology moving around our airspace that we cannot control is something that goes against their primary directive, which is to provide security. 
It's the ultimate move towards insecurity to know that, you know, oh, there's a technology moving around, outmaneuvers our best stuff, it can outperform anything we have, and we actually don't really know exactly what it's doing. They can't make that admission um, for the simple reason that it would go against uh, what their job is. What do you think of that? Yeah, Jay, I mean, I, it makes total sense to me. I, I think that's a very reasonable possibility. In fact, yeah, that's sort of what General Letty said. Remember, James? He said, you know, they can't let the people know about this because it would create panic. I mean, there's a concern. If they come out and acknowledge this about what the implications of it are, just like David said, that there's something in our airspace that's beyond our ability to control. That's one of the most poignant mo- moments, in my view, in the film, is when Leslie asked General Dennis Letty, do you think the people would panic? And he pauses, and it's the, the room is silent, and you see this expression on his face, and he's going through the different scenarios, and he says, I cannot say yes, but I cannot say no. <laughs> <laughs> but his, his expression says it all. You know, it's like, you know what? They just might panic. <laughs> you know, it's like... I think prior to that, he did say that that was... That his, 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 he made that analysis just in one sentence that yeah, obviously yeah. they can't they can't make an announcement like this. I mean, right. it's not gonna, as as you say it's not in the best interest of the government to let you know to let it be known that this is going on. I mean, I, I think David, your assessment makes a lot of sense. Is it also because especially the people who might be in the military and command or a little bit older, and they have the memories in their mind, maybe not of themselves, maybe their parents or grandparents saw the Orson Welles. Well, yeah, Bud Hopkins brought this up in, yeah, in, in our episode. Yeah, about the Orson Welles thing. Yeah. yeah. 39. Was that 1939? Right. Yeah. Was it 39 or was it earlier? Was that in the 30s? It did prejudice people towards the whole subject. It really had an effect. Jumping out of windows. Yeah, yeah, people were freaking out. I mean, and, and the thing is that science fiction and the media and movies sort of presents this idea that people are ready. You know, you have this idea that people have been conditioned, and there are people in the, I'm sorry to bring it up again, the exopolitical movement, that bring up this idea that the media has been essentially prepping people over time by creating archetypal images that are now embedded in the, sort of in the public's mind of the gray alien and and of UFOs, and, you know, where now it's actually sort of passed into being this cultural meme that maybe it wasn't before, and that essentially this is all about prepping people for the big meeting of the species. And, you know, I, I hear stuff like that, and I hear people talking about how Steven Spielberg is on the inside helping people prep for this. And having having worked for, for Steven's movies, having not worked directly for the man, but having worked directly for a number of people who do work directly for him, it's pretty clear to me that the only agenda – what Steven Spielberg has is telling a good story and making money. That this is not about some secret mandate that he's had to sort of promote a certain type of idea. You know, there are people who are dissecting his stuff saying, oh, well, you know, he had um, close encounters at the beginning. That's set one tone. Then he had E.T., but then he turned on the government forces and did the remake of War of the Worlds because he had been betrayed. And it's like, no, he did it because basically, uh, in the case of War of the Worlds, it was a project that had a quick turnaround. It was shot real quick. Post-production on that movie was only like two and a half months, which is like no time to do the effects that they had. So he did the movie relatively inexpensively and made a financial killing on it. And also, so by the way, it had Tom Cruise. This is when Tom Cruise was still popular before he had his big fall in his popularities. So you have a Tom Cruise movie. And the other thing is, as we mentioned Close Encounters was in the 1970s. 
E.T. in the early 1980s. So long ago and far away, we remember them as maybe classic movies, but not to prepare us for anything. No, I agree with you. I don't think there's any kind of a hidden agenda where there's some operatives going around and controlling all the media and how the issue is rolled out. But I want to make one other point, David, about what's changed now. I mean, between now and the 30s, the other thing you have is the fact that so much time has passed. Let's say if you want to call the 1940s the beginning of, you know, the UFO, of knowledge about UFOs. Um, You know, people know by now that the UFOs have not done anything hostile. They haven't attacked. They haven't, you know, hurt people. I mean, you can, there's a whole abduction scenario, which we're going to leave out of the discussion right now because it's too complicated. But in terms of just acknowledging that there is the technology, the more time that passes, the more evidence we have that, that people don't have to be as frightened of them as they maybe thought they had to be earlier when we knew when we knew less about them and they hadn't been tested over time to have been apparently not interested in in attacking us you know uh, i'm going to go back for a moment to close encounters you guys i was going through the raw interview that that we managed to get our hands on of dr dale and heineck shot in 1979 didn't make this section didn't actually make it in the film but he talks about close encounters because it had just come out and he talks about the fact that obviously he's got a cameo appearance in Close Encounters. Yeah, he was a consultant on the project, apparently, yeah. But he's actually in the movie, too. Right, right, at the end. At the, at the yeah. end. Exactly. And, but he talks about the fact that a lot of those cases came directly out of Blue Book files. Mm-hmm. You know, even the burn on the face, Richard Dreyfuss's burn on the face, the, the, the scene over the mailbox shaking and all that stuff came directly out of, that's what he said. Out of some, right, and the car, the car losing its power. And even the beings that were revealed in, in the film were from alleged reports of, or reports of alleged encounters. And then we all know that, uh, that, that Heineck coined the phrase close encounters the first, second, and third time. Mm-hmm. So also, really Jacques Ballet was a consultant on that film as well. Right. I think it's really neat that, that, uh, that Spielberg included a cameo appearance of Heineck because only people on the inside would know. Kind of, you know, what that would mean, you know? Right, but there's no great conspiracy to it. I mean, people no, no, look no, for I'm these conspiracies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, and of course, the, the Truffaut character, based on Jacques Vallée, really, yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. And it was a good movie. I love the movie. I can. I never get tired of watching it. I just watched it again, and it aged well. It's like a- it has aged well. Yeah. Richard now, Dreyfuss hasn't aged well, but... <laughs> Well, you know, movies are timeless. That's yeah. right. And Terry Gar hasn't aged too well either. Played it. Leave her alone. Just leave Terry Gar alone. Okay. Well, I remember her when she did the Star Trek episode. Okay. Peter Kennedy's in ET, right? Not not Close Encounters. Yeah, he's the scientist in ET. That's correct. That's right. That's right. That's, That's right. right. Now, just for fun, I want to, you know, I just want to just interject a personal anecdote here that when Close Encounters came out, I saw it down in Caracas, Venezuela where I was living at the time, and it was on. It was in a theater with one of these insane wraparound screens, the type we don't see anymore. Just, just an amazing, amazing thing. And um, this was just like a, a couple of years after a major UFO sighting I was part of down in, in, in Caracas that I've talked about on the show in the past. You've had the experience, and I know that, James, when you're talking to Soros, he asks you, you know, have you ever, like, gone through this? And you're like, no, not really. <laughs> When, yeah. when, you, when you've had the experience of seeing something of that magnitude, it does, you know, when he's talking about the, the process going through his mind, when he, when he was standing underneath this thing, looking at it through the scope, and, you know, how he talks about that, 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 that issue of kind of trying to slow your brain down and try to figure out what to do, to me, that is one of the ultimate signs of, of him being truthful. 
and being accurate in, in his description of what was happening because, you know, people have this one vision of how this plays out and how that they would be so excited and, you know, they would be going to run for the camera and so forth. And anybody who's really been through this, really been through it, knows that when it's going on, basically you essentially are frozen to the spot. And the last thing going through your mind is how to proceed logically because logic essentially goes out the window. There, there's a huge disconnect between what your eyes are seeing, what your brain is processing, and your body kind of almost really kind of wanting to hide, especially you know, you're confronted with something so big that you know that it could just squish you like a bug. And you don't, you know, maybe you don't sense that fear, but at the same time, that, you know, in the back of your animal brain, that's sitting there. And there's a, there, there is a sense of wonder and fear that goes on that, that Sorrels describes that I think is really effective in, in, for me, cementing the fact that he definitely saw something highly anomalous. And, you know, in getting back to the point of, of seeing close encounters in Caracas, because of the way that the UFO experience is so prevalent down there, it was kind of fascinating watching it with a, a room full of people, a lot of whom had seen weird things, and how for so much of the movie they were so incredibly quiet, just silent. You know, um, it, it's very different from seeing a movie like that in an American theater. There's a different weight to it. Yeah. You know, American uh, theater, nobody has any respect of what's I'll on the screen. I'll tell you really quickly, a very, very close friend of mine and one of the people who actually funded, one of the people who actually funded the documentary. By the way, the fact that I know what I saw was even born is just an absolute miracle. And, and Leslie can testify to that one. I mean, it evolved from doing some slight revisions uh, revamping out of the blue to breaking the interview with, with Symington, and we're talking over a several year period, mm-hmm. to um, you know keep going a little more, pushing a little further for a re-release of out of the blue, and then having to go back to the drawing board and completely redesign and restructure and reshoot uh, an entirely new film, which is, I know what I saw, which, like I said, does have uh, some of the similar cases and footage in out of the, uh, out of the blue, most of which uh, was from, you know, in older interviews that I'd done, you know, uh, the people that are no longer with us. The reason sure. why this guy funded it is because he himself, as a pilot, had a, a close, or had a, an encounter with a UFO. So he, you know, he's, uh, since the 70s, so he's, he's wanted explanations. And, um, and he got behind my project. So it was very, very, mm-hmm. very fortunate. But it was a life-changing experience for him. Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. This is The Paracast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. You never know what's going to happen next. This has certainly, I'm sure, been a life-changing experience for you, spending so many years 
developing these documentaries. Okay, so we have I Know What I Saw. We have it on the History Channel. We have the DVD version. Where do you go from here? Well, I'm going to promote the heck out of this. For me, it's more than just a documentary, and it's a movement. And I've talked to you know a number of people about that. So I'd like to really push this through, really get this film out there. And I'm looking for some backers to help me do that. I've got a few people on the horizon potentially, but I'd like to really, uh, you know, I'm thinking about going on a, on a, on a multi-city tour with government military officials with me for Q&A with the media, screening. You know, I'd really like to continue doing that. And every time I say I'm not going to do another film on this subject, I end up doing another film. I don't know if that's the case now, but I certainly know that I will, I will promote uh, this film uh, as much as I possibly can. Leslie, before we sort of disappear, as you mentioned in part one of the show, you're working on a book without a title, the untitled <laughs> title. Right. So, Sex, Lies, and UFOs. Okay. Sex, Lies, and UFOs. Well, that, of course, I'm going to buy six copies and give it away to my friends. <laughs> exactly. So where are you progressing from here? Well, and the other, I think the, another point to be made in terms of James, you know, promoting this film over a period of time, I think that my book and his film are, are in many ways complementary and both can sort of uh, nurture the other. And I think that when the book comes out, it's just going to be sort of another bit of momentum for a track that James and I have been on for many years. So I see them as very closely related. I mean, where I go from here is to is my definitely my book. I'm going to continue to assist James in whatever way I can, of course, in his work with getting the film out there. But um, my primary work over the last year, and, and w which will continue to be until July when it comes out, will be getting my book completed and out there. And, you know, I've still got a lot of work to do on it. It's right now with the publishers, and they're doing their edits on it. And then I'm going to be getting it back from them. And I'll have a whole other go around where I do a whole other level of revamping and tidying up. And I've got to get together a lot of images for it. And there's a lot, a lot of work to be done still. So that's what's going to be occupying me for many months to come. And then um, there's going to be the promotion when it actually comes out. This is a major book from a major publisher. It's not one of these quickie things. It's something that you're spending a lot of time on. A lot of time. And it's uh, the public. It is a big publisher. It's a, a division of Random House, a division of Crown, with Crown Publishing Group, which is part of Random House. So, um, yeah, it's been years in the making, actually, really. And, the, you know, its first idea, the idea for this book came to light, actually, when, with Fife Symington. I think it was in a conversation James and Fife Symington and I were having at the press conference. And it was Fife Symington who said to That's me, true. this has to be made into a book. Remember that, James? Yes, I do. I remember it. And, you know, I, I toyed around with various scenarios with it following that that the press conference the year after that and then it sort of evolved into something much more substantial than I thought it would be initially and involved a lot more of my own writing and which is what the publishers wanted you know for it to be a narrative that I write mm -hmm. that holds the whole thing together and there's a lot of analysis that I provide and these pieces just sort of fit in to that overarching cohesiveness that I provide as a writer of 50% of the book so let's, let's it's evolved a lot but it's that's where it all was born really at that press conference Leslie, would we embark on these journeys had we known how much work they would involve? Oh, God, James. I, I don't know if I would. This project almost killed me. It really. Did. I know. I mean, it's all the work and the and the financial, you know, the financial payback is minimal or nothing or, you know, I mean, it's so much more than you ever, ever get compensated for. But, James, I don't think I would ever say I wouldn't have done it, and I don't think you would say that either. So, once again, James Fox, director and host of I Know What I Saw. On the History Channel, Monday, October 19th, Tuesday morning, early in the morning, 
October 20th. In case you missed the first one or you forget the DVR, it maybe it'll be repeated again in the future. There will also be a DVD version with extra footage and all other goodies that you want to watch out for, you know, maybe have a yeah. reservation at Amazon be, or something like that. Be, before we do this wrap tune, I just want to say, because I know we're almost out of time, that uh, to, to both Leslie and James, you should know that uh, the Paracast and all of our listeners, really, we deeply appreciate what you're doing. We deeply respect what you're doing. And, you know, in this crazy sandbox where there are so many people who are questionable, and we have no problem pointing out who those people are. It's just a, a pleasure and an honor to be able to point to you two and say, hey, if anybody wants to know the reality or as much of the reality as we know of what's going on, go listen to what these two people are saying and the media they're producing. These are people with very high integrity. And you should just get that acknowledgement. I don't know how many people say it to you that way, but thank both of you for all of that hard work and for the dedication in pursuing this crazy topic we we really appreciate it and so do our listeners i, I really appreciate all of your support i really i can't it means so much to me to hear that and and to all the supporters out there because we couldn't build without you guys we really couldn't and on behalf of james's film we want to encourage everybody to please tune in and to, well, actually this is even more important that everybody spread the word about this broadcast on the 19th because a lot rides on many people watching this show a lot in james's future and there's a lot of a lot of reasons why we need lots of viewers for that program because the History Channel is going to be monitoring it. So anybody, anything that anybody listening can do to spread the word and get the word out, whether it be in their local newspapers or, you know, whatever they can do to make it known that this film is going to be on across the country, we really need people to do that so we get lots of viewers. Thank you very much, James Thank Fox, Leslie Kane, for joining us on the Powercast. Thanks, guys. Great. Thanks. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.